if you're staying in here this morning and you have a Bible, if you would open that to 2 Peter 3. <clears throat> it comes after Genesis and before Revelation. So that if that helps you at all, um, it's in there. Second uh, Peter chapter 3 is where we'll begin our time together this morning. Um, if you've been here before at Grace, if you've been here over the last couple of years, you know I started a sermon series a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago um, entitled Crossing Culture, where we just walked through um, a biblical worldview of different issues that our culture is dealing with in the public square and, and looked at the Bible and what God had to say about those things because the Bible has all things pertaining to life and godliness. So we can look to the scriptures um, for authority on all things pertaining to life and godliness. So we looked at the scriptures, examined those, and helped to see how God would have us to think about issues in our culture, how he would have us to speak to those issues in our culture. Um, And we ended that series just a few months ago. And um, last time I preached, I just kind of preached a standalone uh, sermon. Today we're beginning this series called The King is Coming. Um, I preach about once a month here at Grace Bible Church. I have the opportunity to open the, uh, the Word of God here, and that's a great privilege um, to open up God's Word and, and to teach His people. Um, and uh, I, I, over the last few months, personally, have, have been seeing in my own life how important it is to look at the end of all things. Um, the fact that Christ is coming changes all of life. Um, Luther said we should live every day for that day. Um, and so in, in my desire to do that, in, in my studies, I keep seeing things everywhere that keep pointing me to that day. And it's been a huge encouragement to me just in everyday life, seeing how that changes the way I live, the way I think. Um, and so I wanted us to, to walk through that together as a body um, over the next however many months this will take. Um, we're going to walk through um, what it means that the king is coming. In a theology for the church, Russell Moore writes this, A Christian's eschatology does not consist in his prophecy charts, but in his funeral service. At a funeral, the church is perhaps at its most theological Our crying reminds us that death is not natural, but a horrible curse to be aboard. Our recitation of Psalm 23 and John 11 reminds us that in Christ, we have already been delivered from the power of death, that his story is our story. Our placing of the body in a casket reminds us of the metaphor of sleep used often in the scriptures to convey to us that one who sleeps will also wake. Our burying the body in the earth reminds us that we are only creatures formed from clay, but creatures who will one day be called forth from the dust once again. At a funeral, our hymnody is the most theological, the most resistant to the fads and trends of Christian music. We sing of looking across Jordan's stormy banks, of understanding things better by and by when the morning comes. That's because all of Christian theology points to an end. An end where Jesus overcomes the satanic reign of death and restores God's original creation order. The overarching story with a beginning, middle, and an end makes sense of the smaller stories of each of our individual lives. In scripture, the eschaton is not simply tacked on to the gospel at the end. It is instead the vision toward which all of Scripture is pointing and the vision that grounds the hope of the gathered church and the individual believer 
In the face of death, we see faith, hope, and love. This is what we mean when we speak of Christian eschatology. It is the study of the last things or ultimate matters. Albert Moeller writes on his blog, The human mind cannot help but look to the end. For this reason, eschatology will always be a central feature of any worldview or belief system. The Christian doctrine of eschatology is necessary to the biblical story and to the gospel narrative. Put simply, the Christian story unravels unless God brings the entire course of human history under his visible and perfect judgment. Unless God's justice is perfectly displayed, unless Christ is revealed in glory so that every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, unless Christ claims his redeemed people, unless God's triumph in Christ over death, sin, evil, and injustice is made universal, put simply, unless every eye is dry and every tear is wiped away. There is no Christian gospel if history simply unwinds into a meaningless puddle, if the cosmos simply escapes into a cataclysmic black hole, or if the universe finally dies of exhausted energy without belief in a biblical eschatology, there is no Christian hope. Without a sense of perfect moral judgment in the end, the human heart is homeless. History cries out for judgment and so does the human heart. Atheism offers no final hope and no hope of moral satisfaction. The Bible ends with just such a hope. And this confident hope frames the Christian worldview in the end as much as the belief in divine creation frames the beginning. Even so, Lord, come quickly. From the stories we read to the movies we watch, human History is longing for an end. We want a resolution. We read stories of final judgment. We watch movies of ends of the world because the human heart wants an end. We know internally that this is not the way things were meant to be. We want the happy ending. We long for the happy ending. And as Dr. Moore and Dr. Muller both write, Christian theology and the gospel hinge on the end. The king is coming, and on this, everything else depends. So we're going to read this morning in Second Peter chapter 3. If you're there, say uh-huh. All right. We're going to begin in 2 Peter 3 this morning and just kind of get an overview. Um, the apostles write often of waiting on the coming of the Lord, on the day of the Lord. They encourage believers with this. They call them to holiness because of this. And so this morning, I think Peter in this second epistle sums it up for us well, um, what it means to be waiting for the end of the Lord and what should we do now with that. And and today I'm going to kind of set up where we're going throughout this series, um, what this has to do with the rest of our lives that we live here now. But this morning, we're just going to kind of get an overview uh, of where we'll be going over the coming months. Um, but first, let us pray to the Lord and ask that he would help us to see and hear. Father, we ask that you would help our ears now to hear your word. 
You would help our hearts to trust what you say. You would help our hands and feet to do what you call us to do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's begin reading 2 Peter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and as a thousand years is one day, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of, the, of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in grace. And knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So Peter, closing out this letter, wants to remind his readers of the end, that it is coming. And he gives them three, I feel like in this, in this passage, three specific things for them to do or to, to remember or to know. The first thing he makes sure to tell them is to remember the promise. In verses 1 and 2, he says, That which was from the beginning. Wait, I'm sorry, I'm looking at First John. That is not where we're at. <laughs> this is now the second letter that I'm writing, you beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Remember the promise is what Peter tells the readers. Remember the promise. What is this promise that Peter is talking about? He says, remember what your prophets said, what the apostles have written, what they have taught. What is this promise? It is the restoration and the redemption of creation. Since God called Abraham, he promised him material blessings, the inheritance of land, and nations would come from his seed. That he would defeat all of his enemies 
and that there would finally be shalom or peace for the people of God in a new order. This is the promise that Peter is calling these believers to remember. That there is coming a restoration and a final redemption for all of creation. Isaiah 11 tells us that animal predation will be no more. Animals won't prey on one another or prey on humans any longer. Nature will be once again in harmony with humanity. Isaiah 60, 19 through 22. The demonic order will be crushed. Isaiah 27, 1 and Habakkuk 3, 13. All nations will stream to Israel, bringing their wealth to her gates. Isaiah 60. There will be a final restoration and redemption of this. Peter is saying, remember, remember this, that there will be final restoration and redemption because as these people are suffering for the gospel, as these people are poor and hungry because they've been cast out of society, Peter says, remember, there's coming a day when all of this will be reversed. The curse will be no longer. Jesus will once again rule and reign. He's also telling them to remember that there will be life after death. In the book of Job, Ecclesiastes, many other texts throughout the Old Testament and New, we're reminded that this is not the end. This life that we have now is not where it ends. Once we die here, there is life everlasting. He says, remember the resurrection of the body. Isaiah 26, 19 points to the fact that our bodies will be raised again. Death is not the end. And finally, he says, remember, there is coming judgment. There is coming judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. We will all stand before God in the final judgment. Who is this promise for? Who are these promises for? Who is to remember this promise? Well, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should remember these promises. Peter is telling his brothers and sisters in Christ, remember these promises. Believers, the promise of resurrection to eternal, abundant life in Christ. We remember this promise. Romans 6, 5 through 11 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him for the death he died he died to sin once for all but the life he lives he lives to god so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to god in christ jesus believers are to remember the promise that we are dead to sin and when we finally die this physical death here will we we will be alive finally and fully to god in our redeemed state at his return, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John eleven twenty five. This promise is for believers. We will be raised. 
But this promise of redemption and restoration and judgment is also for the unbeliever. It doesn't have the consequences it does of judge believer. It has very different consequences. For unbelievers, it is the promise of judgment. That judgment will come when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Second Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. Unbelievers as well should be reminded of the promise that judgment is coming. We are to remember the promise and be encouraged. Unbelievers are to be told the promise and to be warned. Peter, continuing to write in verse 3, says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, Peter talking now, that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, water and the word, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. False teachers. We live in a time where people are constantly saying, it's the last day. The end is near, right? And we have preachers on TV and books on shelves and bookstores that are filled with charts telling us when the time is going to happen, what must take place before Christ returns. We have whole theological systems built around when Christ will return and how we interpret the book of Revelation and Daniel 9 and all these different places throughout Scripture. We have people claiming just in the last few years, it's been happening for, for, for many years, but just recently we had a guy claim, this is the day the Lord will return, right? There were billboards all over the place. I don't know if you saw any of those television commercials talking about this is the day the Lord will return, be ready. Um, that day came and passed and he was mistaken. Um, Peter warns against these people as he writes, um, but he warns more against people who say there's no end at all coming. And he specifically uses the instance of the flood. He starts by saying, reject false prophets who, who say the flood didn't happen. And look what he says in verse 3, uh, or verse, verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're saying, nothing has changed. Ever since the beginning, this has all been the same. And Peter says, no, 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 they're mistaken because there has been judgment before. God has destroyed the earth before with water and with his word. Peter's saying either these guys have forgotten about the flood completely or they're just denying it because they don't want to face up to the reality that judgment is coming and Noah's judgment, the, the Noahic flood, was a, a picture of what would happen in the last day. It typified what would happen in the coming judgment. We, too, live in a time where people deny the flood ever happened. 
there are people all around us with scientific um, evidence that, that tells us the flood did not happen. Um, there was no global destruction. And Peter says, beware of those people because they deny a coming judgment at all. We are to reject false prophets who say judgment is not coming, that the end of the world is not coming. We're also to reject false prophets who live like there is no judgment coming. The book title, Your Best Life Now, denies Christian eschatology. That simple title, Your Best Life Now, says there is no better life to come. And so it flies in the face of the gospel and it flies in the face of Christian eschatology because it says you can have all you desire now, the best life here and now. And so we have people all around us who live like there is no better day coming. So they've made themselves at home in this world. And many of these people live and breathe and worship in the church. We ourselves are often guilty of living like this is all there is. We ourselves are false prophets, not looking forward to a coming, but living as though and hoarding up things for ourselves here in this life now so that we can live our best life now. We must not live like there is no future resurrection or coming kingdom. We must be a people who are constantly looking for a coming kingdom and a coming king and a better life than what we have now. We should look for these things in the songs that we sing. In the early 1900s, um, after World War I and World War II, many of the songs written in the church um, and for the church were songs about heaven. After two devastating wars, the church was reminded that this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me through heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. After two devastating wars, the church was reminded that this is not home. After the slaughter of millions of people, they realized this is not the way it was meant to be. And so they began to sing songs and write songs like when we all get to heaven, when the roll is called up yonder, I am bound for the promised land and I'll fly away. And over and over and over again, they sang songs about heaven. As I was studying for this and preparing, I, I just Googled songs about heaven and the first thing that Google suggested I was searching for was funeral songs. That was the, that was the, the top suggestion. Songs about heaven, funeral songs. What a sad testament of the church today. If when we're only singing about heaven at funerals, that, that's, that's the time that, that people want to sing about heaven, is only at a funeral. Now, while I will be the first to admit many of those songs that were sung early on in the 1900s and some still sing them today, it got too heavy on the heaven aspect of the Christian life, right? 
we got to singing so many songs about going to another place that we never exalted God, the gospel, anything in those songs. We were just talking about getting out of here, right? Um, But I fear that in a shift away from that, a younger generation has gone all the way to the other side. We've overcorrected to the point that our songs don't express any discomfort here, any longing for home, any seeking after a city to come. We've gotten too comfortable here. We don't ever sing songs about Christ's return, the heaven that awaits. We can't, we can't fall into that trap. Because truth is a knife's edge, we must always be balancing ourselves. While we're here, we're on mission for God. We are calling people to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. And we should be all about sharing the gospel. Not ignoring those around us, the suffering around us, the people who are on their way to hell around us. But we also must be a people who are focused on a kingdom to come and a better day. And as we share the gospel, as we have mercy on those around us, we point them to a better day and a coming kingdom. It should be in the sermons we preach, in the way we steward our resources, and how we share the gospel, in the way we suffer, in our confession of the truth. All of those things should point to the fact that we look forward to a coming kingdom. And then lastly, Peter calls these brothers and sisters to repent. Verse 8 through 13. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter's saying, while these false prophets prophets say that he's not going to return everything's the same as it's always been he's not coming back give up that hope peter says the lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as you're here you may be thinking would he just return how much more can we take lord jesus come quickly and our hearts should cry out lord jesus come quickly but peter reminds us he is not slow to fulfill his promise this is not him being slow rather he is being patient toward you why is he being patient because he doesn't wish that any should perish but that all should come to repentance he is being patient so that more people will trust in christ For the Christian, we should repent of passivity. We should no longer be passive. We should live holy and godly lives, waiting for the coming of the Lord, hastening the coming of the Lord. We need to reject passivity in all areas of our lives and sharing the gospel with our neighbors. This is an urgent message that we have. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow, not the next day. It's not I'm going to talk to my coworker next week about the gospel. It's I need to talk to my coworker now about the gospel because he's not promised tomorrow. I am not promised tomorrow. The trumpet could sound this afternoon and he is on his way to the judgment seat and hell is on the other side. 
It is an urgent message. We must repent of passivity and see our friends and neighbors and family as those who are perishing and call them to the gospel and to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to live holy and godly lives. The day of the Lord will come, verse 10, like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter says, because Christ is coming, because the Lord is near, his coming is near, we should live holy and godly lives. Not wasting our time on things of this world, but living for the kingdom that is to come. He said we should wait for the day of the Lord. Waiting for the day of the Lord. Have you ever been in a doctor's office waiting to go back? How many of you just enjoy sitting there reading the weird magazines, um, the highlights for the kids, uh, all those things, sitting, sitting and reading, just going through. Um, I mean, does anybody go to the doctor's office because they just don't want to pay for a magazine subscription, so they go to the doctor's office to read their magazines? I, I, I don't know of anybody who's comfortable in the waiting room just waiting and enjoying that. Right. Everybody in the waiting room, as you look around, is antsy to get to the back. Right. Have they called my name yet? They go to the bathroom. They come back. Did I miss my name called? Right. I was in the waiting room just a a few weeks ago with with Sarah. um, And uh, there was a lady sitting across the waiting room from us. And and she'd already been there an hour and a half or so. And she kept saying, if my name's not next, I'm leaving. If my name's not next, I'm just leaving. The next name would be called, and she would go, okay, I'm done. She would get up. Her husband would say, just wait. Okay. If the next one is not my name, I'm leaving. That happened three or four times. They finally called her name, and and she went back. But I don't know anybody who's comfortable in the waiting room. We all want to get to the back. We all want to stop waiting. We do not like to wait. But we wait. Why? Because we know going back into the doctor's office is going to help whatever problem we've got that needs to be fixed. Seeing the doctor will, will help us in some way. And so, so we wait. As impatiently as it might be, we wait. And it's the same here. Peter's saying, wait on the Lord. We are ready for this to be over. If you look around you at suffering and the sin and death, And all the things that come with the curse, you should be ready for this to be over. We want the coming kingdom. But we wait. We wait. Not only do we wait, we hasten the coming of the day of God. We hasten the coming of the day of God. How do we hasten the coming of the day? We spread the gospel we know from scripture that Christ will not return till people from every tongue, nation, tribe have heard the gospel. And so we go. 
Now, we have no idea what those categories are in God's economy. We can make up our own. Right now, the International Mission Board says there are about 6,000 people groups that still have been unreached and unengaged by the gospel. 6,000 people groups. Almost half of the people groups that they have classified around the world have been unreached and unengaged. And so from the only statistics and measures that we have, unless people go to these people, we are not going to see the return of the Lord anytime soon. Now, his economy could be very different. We don't know that. But we hasten the coming of the day of the Lord by going to these people that we know are unreached and unengaged with the gospel, by taking it to them so that every person will hear. I am a big fan of the movie Elf. Um, and judging by the reaction, many of you are as well. Um, the el- Elf, not the Elf. Elf is... Um, probably the best movie Will Ferrell has ever made, um, which is not hard um, to do. But I love the character of Buddy the Elf, right? He leaves a world where he was very comfortable with what he knew, and he comes into a world where he's very uncomfortable and very much an outcast and an alien. He doesn't quite fit into anything, any mold, um, he goes along the street picking gum out from under the handrails and eating it and spinning around in the rotating door till he throws up and, and all these different things. He just doesn't fit in in the world. And then Buddy hears one day that Santa is coming. He's in a department store and Santa is coming to the department store. And so Buddy gets very excited. And if you've seen the movie, you know that Buddy spends all night preparing the department store for Santa's arrival. He folds paper and makes paper snowflakes and he strings lights and he builds things with, with Legos and he, he, he writes signs with the old light bright things and, um, and he prepares for the coming of Santa. In a way, Buddy is hastening the coming of Santa. He is ready. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't sit. He doesn't just relax and wait. But he prepares for the time that Santa will come, we as believers in Jesus Christ should have the same mentality as Buddy the Elf when Santa came into town. Not for Santa, but for Jesus Christ. We look and we wait and we prepare and we do all we can to get everybody ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Christian, we must repent of passivity. For the non-Christian, we repent of sin and turn to Jesus. If you are here this morning and you don't know Christ, the call of repentance for you is putting down all of your works and anything you can bring to Christ. Repent of your sin and turn and look to Christ who has satisfied God's wrath on your behalf on the cross. He took the death that you deserve. The judgment and the wrath that was due your sin on himself stands in your place. By his grace, all you have to do is repent and believe in this great gift. Have you noticed how nothing seems to last in this world. 
Have you noticed how nothing works out exactly the way we hoped it would? Have you noticed how all your best intentions often come to nothing? Have you seen that? Do you know that? Does that resonate with you this morning? Jesus is your only hope. Your only hope. Trust him by placing your faith in him to save you. The king is coming. What will we do in the meantime? How will we live in the meantime? Let's pray. Father, we come to you with broken lives, broken homes, broken hearts. knowing that this world is not how you intended it to be in the beginning. That in Adam's sin, the whole world came under a curse that we now live under the effects of that curse. And God, we look forward to the day when Christ will, recom- will come and redeem and restore this creation when we will finally and fully be in Eden once again. But Father, an even better Eden, where the Lamb is the light, and the saints of God will worship you for all eternity. God, as we look forward to the coming kingdom, I pray that we would be faithful here. And we'd be faithful with the gospel, that we would share the gospel, that we would go, that we would give generously, that we would live holy lives. God, and that we would wait. We would wait patiently and faithfully. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.